Okay, so we're in Luke here, Luke 13, starting in verse 22, if you're following along in a Bible. If you want a Bible, there's a bunch of them back there. Um, last week, somebody went and took a Bible, and the whole pile fell over, which was really funny. So when you're taking a Bible, be careful. It's somewhat booby-trapped. So I, I'm going to start off, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, the parable of the narrow door, and um, uh, Jesus uh, saying, make every effort to enter through the narrow door in Luke 13. But I wanted to, to start first by asking a question. If you, uh, this is probably a question you've heard before from a pastor, but if, you c if, if uh, Jesus was here in the flesh now, if you could ask him any, any question at all, and it could be a, you know, a personal one or a, a more of a, a larger question, a cosmic question, but any question at all, and you had one question to ask, I mean, what would it be? And it's, I think that's a helpful reflection. I'll take you a second um, to think about it. And if anybody is willing to, to shout it out, what, what question you would ask Christ, I'd be curious to know. This is not a right or wrong answer thing. What was that? Why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? That's a big one, yeah, through the ages. A lot of people have asked that. Why mosquitoes? Another big one. Related to the suffering. That's sort of a subcategory. Yes. Well done. Why me? That could refer to a lot of things, couldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, why would you die for me? On your sin? Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. This is good because I didn't get any of the ones I anticipated. Um, th those are good questions. Yeah. Where okay. Do I come from? Where do I come from? Your parents didn't explain. No. <laughs> They talked to me after the service. <laughs> um, but actually, that's, in all seriousness, that actually is a good question. Who were we? What were we uh, before, before life? Yeah, no, it's, that's a good one. Okay, well, I, I'm gonna, let's go ahead and read uh, this passage, and I'll, I'll explain how that relates here in, in just a second. So let's just read through this together. So Jesus is, you know, uh, still on his way to Jerusalem, as he is through most of the Gospel of Luke. And uh, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. And he'll answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Let's keep going, Jay. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And he'll reply, I don't know you, or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. And in the Greek, that's literally, away from me, all you who practice unrighteousness. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their place at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. 
So the reason I asked about what, what question you would ask Jesus if he were here today in the flesh is that quite often, um, you know, we think of questions we would like to ask Jesus if he were here, and it troubles us or, or it's difficult for us. If we, you know, if we struggle with something, we really want to know the answer, and we don't know how to respond to it. Um, and when I was thinking about it, and, and uh, commendably, you guys took it to a personal level very, very quickly. But uh, in, in a more political level, uh, in the day and age of Christ was here, we might ask him as a community about things like abortion or homosexuality or war or pacifism, uh, you know, the, the things that really uh, tear us asunder as a community often, that, you know, that we... We might want to ask Jesus these things in, in, in a sense of what, you know, what are the, what would God say uh, to these, these questions? A theologian might want to press Jesus on issues of things like predestination, or can God change, or is God in time, or is God outside of time, things like this. Or uh, in other areas of controversy, we might ask him questions about evolution, or Noah's Ark, or all these things that... Uh, have been or continue to be controversial in certain parts of our world. Yeah, in other words, the burning questions that reign throughout our society, and they can be quite personal too, as, as we've seen. And as one might expect, and it is true, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus really was asked all the burning questions of his day, just as if he was walking through Champaign-Urbana, people would have pointed exacting questions for him. And this here, uh, let's go back to uh, the beginning of that passage there, Jay. Someone asked him, and often, by the way, um, just as an aside, uh, frequently uh, in the Gospels, sometimes someone specific asks him a question like a Pharisee, or sometimes it's a disciple who asks Jesus a question. Uh, quite often when it's something generic like this that someone asked him, usually that indicates or, or uh, um, biblical scholars presume that that indicates that he was asked that question by a lot of people. <laughs> that it wasn't just a one-time specific to that moment question, but rather a lot of folks asked him that question. So someone asked him, probably a lot of someones, because it makes sense too, uh, that a lot of someones would ask him that question. Uh, you know, uh, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? It's kind of a, a permutation of a question he's asked a couple other times in the Gospels of uh, who then can be saved? You know, it's, it's, it's a question of salvation and the parameters of salvation. And, and really, it was the, the question for all of Israel at that time. And, and I've come to believe that there, there is a specific reason that Jesus came to earth when and where he did. And I'm convinced that one of those reasons, maybe the most prominent, I, I don't know, it's conjecture, but... One of the more important reasons, in my view, is that Israel at that time was a rather focused nation. And specifically, they were focused on salvation. Very focused on salvation. In a way that they hadn't been previously, in a way that they weren't, well, Israel didn't last for much longer after, after Christ, but um, it was a unique time, is my point. God had, over the centuries, created a unique people, the Jewish people, with unique expectations of God and of themselves and a unique circumstance. These people, the Israelites at the time, had the highest expectations of God. I mean the highest, that, that he would change everything, bring light and, and salvation and peace to the earth. They had the highest anthropology of any people ever, which is to say the highest view of human beings as being made in the image of God and salvageable 
And at the same time, at this time in Israel, they were losing the last bit of hope that they had that they could ever uphold their side of the covenant. They were losing the last vestige, last shred of hope. They had tried everything, and if you're familiar with Israelite history, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have time to go into it in detail, but they had tried everything to uphold their side of the covenant, you know, the covenant given in, in uh, the Torah that basically says, God says, I will bless you, and I'll make you a light to the nations, but in order to do that, you have to follow these rules that will make you holy, that will keep you holy and a light, and that's the covenant, you know, and, and Israel failed. In a sense, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute here, but there, there was also no spiritual unity in the country, something to keep in mind during the time of Christ. There was no spiritual unity. Uh, they were fractured, uh, various uh, sects and, and, and denominations, to use our modern phrase. But altogether, as a whole, the Jewish people, and this is, comes through very clearly in the writings, uh, they had a, a very strong sense as a whole of God's judgment upon them. They felt that weight of that judgment heavily. And, equally important, they felt that they largely deserved that judgment. It wasn't like a... It wasn't like a uh, heady, resentful kind of sense. It was a sense of, we have failed and we know it, if that makes sense. And they didn't know what to do about it. And in that sense, Israel was a failed state, in, in, this, in the way that we use that phrase. Because Israel, of course, was created by Yahweh, by God, the Creator God, to be a nation wholly committed to Him. That's why the Jewish people were created for that purpose, to be a people wholly committed to Him and wholly holy. A nation that would be just, compassionate, and a light to all the other nations around uh, through, through following the Torah. A light for their salvation, uh, for the nation's salvation as well as for Israel's. And that's the reason that Israel existed. Israelites knew, they knew, it was in their scriptures. They knew that their calling was not to become the most powerful empire in the world, you know, such as the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire before it. Uh, it wasn't to be the most stable empire in the world, that wasn't their calling either, like Egypt, for example or the wealthiest nation in the world, like the Phoenicians or others. Any of these things, that was not their calling. They might at times have you know, been certain permutations of those things, but that wasn't their calling. They existed to be an example of what a holy people given over to a holy God looked like. And instead, no shock to us, instead they continued to be a group of people like every other group of people. Shocking, right? Riven by internal debate, proud, uncaring for the poor, rebellious against, rebellious against authority of any stripe, even proper authority, and still all of them sinning against God in all the ways that people throughout all the ages up until now have been tempted to sin, doing all those things. And Jesus, you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for quite a while now, and as Jesus walks through Israel in the Gospel of Luke, we see these sins up close. You know, it acts like a, a microscope getting you closer, you know, pride, Arrogance, condemnation, sexual infidelity, broken families, callousness towards the poor, extortion of fellow Israelites. That's just off the top of my head. I didn't research that list. <laughs> uh, you know, if you go, it, all the sins are right there and up close. Israel was a failed state in every sense of the word. God had called them to a higher calling and they had failed. Now, also of note, and the reason Christ came when he did, there was one thing that they had succeeded at or I should say God had succeeded at in driving out from among their lights, which was uh, paganism, polytheism. They were no longer worshiping foreign gods as they were before the Babylonian exile. They knew that God was God, and they only worshiped that God. That is one thing that is true of Israel at this time. They were given over wholly to God, and they had wholly failed God. Does that make sense? They believed 
they trusted, and they were completely without excuse before him. So this question that is asked of Jesus is really the pointed, the most burning question for an Israelite of this period. Who, how, how is salvation even possible, really? Or in, in, in this question, how narrow is the door? And I think it continues to relate to us today, which is why I'm going, I'm going into some depth here in Israelite history, but I don't think this is, this is not just some theological, I hope this, uh, bear with me, <laughs> there will be a payoff. Um, I'll pull a bunny out of this hat yet. So uh, the, answer to the answers to this question of uh, who then can be saved or how narrow is the door to salvation uh, ranged within the Jewish uh, nation at the time. You had the Sadducees, which you've probably heard from from the, the, the text, who were sort of the elite, the most educated of Israel. They, they uh, were, uh, t tend to be uh, mostly in Jerusalem. They controlled the Sanhedrin. They were very powerful, very wealthy. And the, the Sadducees' answer to who then can be saved is essentially uh, no one. Uh, because they, they basically did away with the problem by saying, you know what, there's, there's no afterlife. There is no, it's, you, you die, uh, you're just done. The best you can do, the Sadducees would have said, the best you can do is sort of an Ecclesiastes type thing where you can live the best life possible, uh, know God, tr try to be a good person, follow the law, and then it's over. And so, you know, that's really only a hopeful story if you really are at the top of the pecking order and your life is pretty darn good. Eh, not so hopeful for the rest of the folks. Uh, so uh, the Sadducees kind of had isolated themselves uh, theologically in that sense, and they said just basically no one is saved. And then you had what was known as the Essenes. You may have heard of the Essenes from Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they're more than likely that group, although there's some contention. But at any rate, the Essenes, were they were spread throughout Israel. A lot of towns and cities had an Essene sect, an Essene cult within them. And the Essene answer to who then can be saved or how narrow is the door is, that is basically we are the door. And it, so you know, here's the, the perimeter around our community. If you're in our community, you're saved. If you're outside the community, you're damned. And it's really that simple. Everything else is corrupt. Everything is, you know, this is, this is where you have to be part of our, our church. You have to follow our rules. You have to, you know, there's all these Essene-like rules, monastic-type rules. And if you're in, you're saved. If you're out, you're not. And there are organizations like that today. I mean, um, I'm blanking. Like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, for example, would be uh, one. Um, groups that say, you know what? The, Salvation is, is within these parameters, and we can, we can spell out for you exactly where those parameters are. And so that's, that's the Essenes in Israel at the time. Then you had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were closest to Jesus in terms of their theology, and the Pharisees said, you know what, anyone can be saved, anyone. You don't have to be part of our little, you don't have to be within a certain community or, or follow, you know, or do, uh, uh, be born of a certain, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyone can be saved. Here's the standards for salvation. I mean, I can't even get that high. I'm not very tall. Add another 10 feet to that. Um, the standards are just off the chart, like you, good luck. Um, and they're, they're very highly legalistic, and they expected a, an immense uh, amount from the people who, who claim to be Pharisaic in, in, in persuasion. And most, th the truth is, most people couldn't live up to those, those, those legalistic standards. Um, and in fact, the ones who actually managed to fulfill every single, uh, as they say, jot and tittle of the law, uh, just lost all light, any, any sort of light or life within them by virtue of such legalism. But that's, a, a second, that's another sermon that I'm not giving right now. Um, at any rate, so th that's, what you had, that's the three main answers, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. So all, all kinds of answers to the question of who then can be saved. And you know, we can expand it. 
to go beyond the, the walls of Israel, that this question, uh, everything bears the weight of this question, or this question bears down, I should say, on everything. Every New Year's Eve re re resolution, which you've all failed miserably, I don't even have to ask, every promise made by every politician everywhere, every liberal, every conservative, every individual and organization who claimed or claims to have found a way, a process, by which to achieve peace and enlightenment in this world and a society of godly people, who then can be saved? How narrow is the door to salvation is laid at the feet of the communists, of the capitalists, the fascists, the technocrats, the Luddites, the hippies, the moral majority. And again, that was all at the top of my head. <laughs> I could go on. All of them all fall short of the glory of God, and not a little short, not a little short, a lot short. So the question falls heavy upon the whole earth, and none are spared its touch. So, as I said, at this time in Israelite history, this question was not brooding beneath the surface. It wasn't like a subconscious angst. It was a immediate theological concern for the people of Israel at this time. Even the temple, the new temple, created angst in Israel. Sure, there was a temple you could worship at, a temple you could sacrifice at and worship God, but it was built by Herod the Great, one of the most evil men of history. Well, one of the evil men of history. There's plenty of evil men of history. A treacherous, cruel man who killed his own children and wasn't even Jewish. I mean, it, there was a lot of, that's why the Essenes got out of the temple and created their little, uh, their, their communities. And even, even within the temple, human corruption had insinuated itself and people were making money, as Jesus very pointedly makes the point in the temple later on with, uh, uh, by creating something of disturbance, that it, it's become a place to make money more than a place of worship by selling uh, goods to people uh, within the, the temple market to, to, to make a profit off of worship. So there was no spiritual unity. God's judgment was felt and believed, and they believed in God. And the extremes they would go to, like the Pharisees and the Essenes, the extremes they went to for salvation are indicative of how much of a loss they were at. I mean, they were at a complete loss. They couldn't figure out how to be holy. They, they looked at the world, there are people just like us. I mean, when you look at the world, do you see a holy people? I mean, anywhere? <laughs> um, it's, if, all you have to do is dig a little bit beneath it. If you see a people and they look holy and perfect to you, I guarantee you you're looking at them from afar. Go and live in that community for, for a year, and then tell me how holy and perfect they are. It's only from afar that we see perfect people. Parents do this all the time, by the way. You see perfect parents? <laughs> Laura and I was like, those parents are so perfect. I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> I take it as a theological premise that they are deep sinners. That's a rabbit trail. That doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, I, I'm going to make one more point before I get to my point. <laughs> uh, this, uh, that, that phrase, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved, sometimes things in the Greek don't translate real well to the English. It's a little awkward, and so they smooth it out, but they lose a bit of the significance of it. That's actually a present passive participle, that going to be saved bit. Can anybody tell me what a present passive participle is? No, you can't. Because <laughs> Cheryl Layman's not here to tell us all what a present <laughs> passive participle is. She's on vacation. Uh, but at, at any rate, it's, it, it's present tense. What he's actually asking, it's actually just three words. He says, uh, and actually, do I have that up there? It's, uh, it's very short. That kurie e oloigoi sos demonoi, that the last four words of that is if few being saved. It's present. It's if few being saved. So what he's asking, or what, she could be a woman, what he or she is asking in that moment, as I said probably several people, are people being saved right now? 
It's, in other words, it's not after death. or it's like they're, they're coming to Jesus and they say, are, are just a few people being saved right now or a lot of people? I'm confused. What's going on here? Is, what, what's the param- Jesus, what are the parameters of your salvation here and now? So it's not a future thing that's being asked. They, uh, it's, a, it's a present thing. Who's being saved? He says, and Jesus replies, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. So I want to look at that. Oh, uh, can you, Jay, can you go back? Um, yeah, thank you. That he said to them, um, I'm uh, four lines down, he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. I want to focus on that phrase, make every effort. Um, that's a Greek word. It means to strive, to compete for a prize, to battle, a sense of putting everything you have into it. Uh, it's it's a, a phrase that's used in the gladiatorial contest sometimes. Just battle, uh, strive, put everything you have into this. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So there, part of the image there is that there's no halfway disciples of Christ. It's not a... you. It's, it's an all or nothing kind of thing. It's not like you can sort of try and it'll be okay. You're, you're, you're all under Christ or you're not. Now, in the polytheistic word, world, of course, you could serve two or more gods or even uh, you know, hundreds of gods if you wished. But for the Jews, for those of us who worship God, you can't serve two gods when one is God. Does that make sense? You can't serve two gods when one is God. God what's one of the first things we learn about God in the Bible is that he's a jealous God because he's the one true God, and so it's any idol is going to tear us up and dismiss us. So he doesn't tolerate idols in your life. So part of this phrase, when you come to Christ, you give him all, your soul, your heart, your allegiance, your love, your trust, which isn't easy to give Jesus every. I'm not saying it's like, so that's simple, you've got that, and let's move on. To give Christ your all is a difficult thing, but anything less indicates that you haven't really, either you haven't really understood who he is or, or uh, you haven't understood what he's done for you or how much he loves you as, as uh, was related earlier. That, you know, what has he done for me? And people, and I see this all the time, people simply drift away into unbelief or the facade of belief, which in some ways is just worse, which is religious practice with no heart underneath it, no substance underneath it, just religious practice, which is the kiss of death in my view. So the battle, the striving here, and this is maybe the strongest point I want to make this morning, the striving here, the battle is talked about to enter through the narrow door is not to be a better person. That would just be another reiteration of the Pharisaic model or the Essene model. It's not to be a better person. That's not the striving. Jesus emphasizes this very strongly. The battle is not to become a more compassionate or holy or loving individual. That's not the striving we, we do here in church either. And that is the lesson of Israel. That people have already, a whole nation has come before you and tried that. <laughs> and tried it very hard to be that people for God. And they couldn't do it. Not because they're worse than you, just because they're people. People like you, people like me, they're broken. So that is the lesson of Israel that we are to learn. It's why the Old Testament is appended to the New Testament, or the other way around, doesn't matter. We can't read enough self-help books, and we cannot meditate or pray or change our diet, I'm sorry you Whole30 people, in such a way that the darkness will go away. <laughs> Sin will not be excised through the Whole30 diet. That's probably not news to anybody here, but um, point being, we can't save ourselves. And that's a, a core, a core uh, 
biblical teaching. And if Jesus was telling this questioner, or these questioners, if he was telling them you just need to try harder, again, it would just be bad news all over again. If he was saying try harder, you just need to try harder, that would just be the same old, same old. No, the striving is to know Christ. That's where the battle is fought. That's where the gladiatorial contest plays itself out. The striving is to know Christ, to fight, to battle, to know Christ. That's the whole parable here. That's the whole thing. People come to his door and knock, and he doesn't know them. There's a, there's a, there's a relationship that's at the core of salvation here. It, and Jesus basically says, I don't have any relationship with you. I don't know who you are or where you come from. And then they'll say, and some will say, They'll make the claim that, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Well, it's kind of evil laugh. I'm sorry. It's not my favorite part, but uh, it's, it's intriguing nonetheless. Yes, you do know me, and you do know where I come from. We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And some will say they have a claim on Jesus. Some will say they have a claim on him because they, they knew him. We ate with you, we drank with you, and you taught in our streets. Of course, that's carefully worded, isn't it? Jesus tells the parable uh, with some nuance here. He's saying, Jesus taught in our streets. Doesn't say we learned from you. Doesn't say we followed you. Doesn't say we were your disciples, that we gave our lives to you or our heart to us. Doesn't say you taught in our homes. Doesn't say any of that. Says there's a sense that Jesus sort of passed through town, right? If you read that, like he, he came through. I remember you. You're that guy. Yeah. Um, lip service giving lip service to Jesus, calling him, you know, maybe a good man who helps the poor. So, I mean, how many times do you hear that, right? You know, I'm, I, I'm not a Christian, but I believe Jesus was a good man. Well, okay, that's, there's lots of good men and women, and, but that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about discipleship. I'm not saying do you have a moral judgment on who Jesus is. That's not, that's not what Jesus wants from us or of us. In other words, don't let Jesus teach in your streets. Don't let Jesus teach in your streets. You have to invite him into your home. And accept his invitation to come into his home. Th this is Jesus' home, in essence. Um, uh, the place where the body of believers gather to worship and pray is, is the home of Christ. There is an intimacy here that is presumed in this parable that must be present for salvation to obtain. That we are his people and he is in our home. I mean, what that looks like, it's almost dangerous to put parameters on it because then you end up Right with the same sort of legalism, but I can share vulnerably from my heart what it kind of looks like in, in a in a in a Sethian kind of way. <laughs> yeah, that's a word. Um, you know, to 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 learn from the Bible, for example. And I don't mean just well, I'm a preacher, so I <laughs> okay, I, I cheat. I have to preach, so I have to learn from the Bible every week. Uh, but but to 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 read the Bible devotionally and intellectually, and those two aren't always at odds with one another, although they are very different ways of approaching the Bible. And to do it daily, just not legalistically. If you skip a day, no, no mea culpas, just, just to invite the word into your home. Listen to preachers and teachers whom you respect. Nobody left. Okay, good. <laughs> um, online or on the radio, you know, in your home, in the car, whatever. Um, turn off the ones that you feel like are maybe not the best for your spiritual health. I'll give you a list if you would like. <laughs> be thirsty for God, in other words. I mean, it's, we're talking, be thirsty, want to know God. This is what this parable is about. Want to know God. Want to know God more. Look for his hand of guidance in, in everything you do. I mean, that was something I had to learn, to look for God's hand of guidance. I had to learn from, 
from my elders. I had to learn from the Suttons and the Petersons and the, what it meant to, to look at your life on a daily or weekly or monthly basis and say, there, I see God's hand working there. And I can, I can jump into that and follow that, as opposed to just my life is just a random... I mean, I grew up thinking my life was a random series of events, rather disconnected. And to even to learn to look for God is a discipline of sorts. And again, not in a legalistic sense, but that's how you get to know Christ. Because once you see him working, you can jump in with joy and follow his, his call. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants a, a partnership. He's not, you're not a sock puppet of Christ. He wants a, a, a partner. That's a great quote. Somebody write that down. <laughs> uh, that's my next book. You're not a sock puppet of Christ. Anyway, keep your sin before you every day. This is something I try to do. Not too hard in my life. Well, I, I'm joking, but it, it's, it's an easy thing to forget how bad a sinner you are. It really is. In this middle-class American life where we have everything we need, our needs are met, you know, if you're like me and you're li living the good life with two healthy kids and you've got what you want and need in life, it's easy to forget about your sin. It's easy to forget about your sin. It, it's, it's funny when you're put in a, in a situation of stress and you realize, wow, <laughs> I'm not the calm, peaceful, shalom person I thought I was. I'm a bit of a, you can fill in the blank, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, the sin is there. It's just hidden a lot by our, by our, our wealth and our, and our privilege. Keep your sin before you every day, as the psalmist says. And above all, if we keep the focus off of ourselves and onto Christ, just the focus, N never mind what you're thinking or what you're doing, just focus off of yourself and onto Christ, and your life will change. You will, I promise this, no, it's not, this is not a used car salesman promise. <laughs> you will become more holy. You will become more compassionate and more excited about life and more excited about what Jesus is doing when you get the focus off of yourself and onto Christ and what he's doing. And you diminish, in, in the best possible way you diminish, your ego and your, your sense of, of who you are. And the striving is to know Christ and to know him more every day. And leave the changing of yourself to, to the Holy Spirit. Leave the, you, you cannot change yourself. I mean, when, maybe when I was 20, I thought that was a pithy saying that was something that I kind of figured you, people can change themselves. Oh my gosh, no, <laughs> I can't change, I, at least I can't change myself. I've given up. I, am no, no, I don't make any promises to anybody anymore regarding my internal holiness. I do make some promises that I try to keep. But I, I, I just, I can't change myself. And so I just try to know Christ. And I try to know what he teaches and I try to be uh, subservient to Christ. As, as, the, as the phrase goes, and it's supposed to be radical, and it's supposed to push into us as a slave of Christ. That's supposed just, God, whatever you want. I wake up every morning, I want to do it. And you can trust that, and you can rest in that, in the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're striving to know Christ, you don't have to carry the rest of the work yourself. It's like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're taking antibiotics, you don't have to sit at, you know, for infection. I, this is on my mind because my son is sick right now. But Juddy doesn't, assuming that the sickness is properly diagnosed, and assuming the medication is the right medication, so if the diagnosis and the medication match, then my son doesn't need to try and heal. You know, I don't be like, well, here's some antibiotics, and now you need to really try, try and heal. heal. Are you thinking about healing? Are you healing? Heal! <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how we are in the church sometimes. We're like, you know... Here, here's the Holy Spirit, here's the Word of God, here's worship, here's the fellowship of believers, but you really got to try hard to be a good person. You need to try harder. And that's just not the good news, because that, that's just bad news all over again, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So, 
I commend to you here in Cornerstone Fellowship today, drop trying to be a good person. Just try to get to know Christ better. Now, don't stop trying to be a good person and don't get to know Christ because then you become a sociopath. <laughs> um, and I don't want it said that my pastor led me down the route. You know, I ended up a serial killer and I felt, you know, tricked by, anyway. So, that's, that's, I believe that is what this parable and what this passage tells us to do. To put the relationship with Christ at the center of our lives and to drop all other striving. And there was a lot of striving in Israel at this time and that's what that question is in regard to. How few of us are being saved? And it's interesting. It starts off with a very narrow door. And this will be the last thing I say. Um, so it starts off sounding almost like bad news, right? Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. But then the parable unfolds and you realize the reason the door is narrow is not because it's tightly shut or anything like that. The door is narrow because it's one person. It's Jesus. It's what he did for, did for us on the cross. It's not a narrow door because it's uh, hard to get through in that sense. It's narrow because just uh, it's a singular event in person. And that's what makes it narrow. And the reason I can say this with confidence is because, uh, Jay, if you can move, move ahead here. Uh, or Sorry, the second part of the passage. Yeah, there we go. By the end of the parable, is the door narrow anymore? You, people will come from east and west and north and south and, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. And the sense that the door is wide open. I mean, it's a sense of like from every corner of every nation, there are people coming. And it says that the last will be first. Well, in my world, there's more last people than there are first people, which makes the door even wider. I, it's a very wide door with, a, 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 I was going to say a narrow individual, but I <laughs> with an individual, a person at the center of it. And that's the, that's the narrow door. And all you need to do is to try and get to know him. Because you're going to be a sinner your whole life. I, I can guarantee that as well. But I have seen people's lives be reinfused with a joy and a peace that comes from knowing Christ. And that's it. Just from knowing Christ. And things switch. Well, let's pray and then we'll go to communion. <laughs>